I'm, I'm praying that the Spirit fills our hearts with so much wonder at the glory of the good news of the gospel and the privilege of partnering together to make that known. I'm praying that fires something in us as a church that we leave this room and we just start telling people. I mean right here, like right here in this city, like right there in the restaurant, right there in the coffee shop. We just start telling good news. Friends, that's why we have a letter like Philippians. So here we are in chapter 3. I just want to say personally, um, if I had to live the rest of my life with only one page of the Bible, it would be this page. In my Bible, that's page 1059. This would be the one I'd rip out and I'd spend the rest of my life with this with this page, if, uh, if I could only choose one chapter of the Bible to live the rest of my life on, it would be Philippians 3. Um, it was almost exactly 25 years ago as a freshman in college that I first read the book of Philippians as a whole and first read these verses. I was reading through uh, this letter and uh, I came across some places that were familiar. This passage wasn't particularly familiar to me and I'll share a little bit more of that story a little later, but that day, something in this passage through the work of God's Spirit lit, lit a fire in me that has only intensified these past 25 years by God's grace. And so, when I come to verse 10, the words in the version I was reading back then in 1993, the words were, that I may know him. Those, those words are, that's my life statement, that's my, my highest ambition, that I may know him and so this is my that's my life verse and I would argue that that this passage is Paul's life verse as well I know that could be biased but I think that this text reads like this is Paul saying right here this is where it's at this is why I live my life this is his chief ambition so follow along if you would chapter 3 beginning in verse 4 Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Here's, a, here's our problem, is we hold things back from Jesus. We withhold from Jesus. It's a common issue, right? We're, we're content to have as little of Jesus as is necessary to reach heaven. 
So often that's the case, right? We don't, we don't realize we're the ones who suffer when we withhold from Jesus. That's, a, that's my loss. We're the ones who suffer. We don't realize this truth that the more we give him, the better he gets. The more we know him, the better he gets. The more joy there is, the more we give him, the better he gets. This passage is about a Christianity that is diffusive. It's about a Christianity that permeates the whole of one's life. Everything is touched by this highest ambition. Speaking of of permeating, last winter, one very early morning, I don't know if you've ever had this where you wake up about two hours earlier than you're supposed to wake up and you can't fall back asleep and your mind is racing and so you finally give up and just say, I might as well start the day and so you get out of bed. Well, that's what happened to me and it was a very cold morning and I had a couple of hours extra and so I decided to change my normal routine with all this extra time and start my day reading the Bible in the bathtub. And so... uh, yeah, that's what I did. It was really cold. I could tell there was, it was cold outside. There was a chill in the bathroom. And so I went and made coffee, made that right, got my iPad ready for my Bible reading, uh, ran the water. And so just back up for, for one second. Um, I know how unradical this is going to sound, but we have a, a bathtub. We didn't buy the house for the bathtub, but um, we have a bathtub that has um, jets, Right, um, I'm, yeah, I'm not proud of it, um, but, uh, but I'm not ashamed of it either, and, uh, and I have used them to the glory of God. And that's what I intended to use that morning, is those jets for the glory of God. And so I got in, and man, it was just, it was perfect. I mean, chill in the air, but then just this warm bath, Bible open, cup of coffee on the ledge behind me in the bathtub, and a couple of things I didn't realize going into this that makes it a story worth telling is, uh, is that the, the surface of the bathtub behind me where the coffee mug was is actually not level. I thought it was, isn't, it wasn't level. And the other thing is when you push that button and turn the jets on, there is a, there is a tremor that would cause something that's on a slope to come sliding perilously in your direction. And so there I was, warm bath, bubbles, air, jets, Bible, everything was wonderful until about verse 16 of whatever chapter it was that I was reading and I heard a sound over my right ear and then I felt a searing pain over my right shoulder and just cat-like reflexes, I grabbed the mug and I held the Bible aloft. And um, even that instinct to preserve God's word, It was actually, on reflection, it was actually encouraging that that's what I did. I'm, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to keep the Bible out of the water, right? And, and the upshot of that story, the consequence and, and effect of the story is I was effectively now bathing in coffee. So you thought you loved coffee. I bathe in this stuff. Literally, I was bathing in coffee. And I can tell you from personal experience, it only takes about eight ounces of coffee to color the entire bathtub. It looked like you had hung multiple tea bags over into the bathtub because all of the water had changed. The permeation was, was total. How do I get back to the sermon? <laughs> from, from there, the permeation was total, right? I think, 
I think the reason that analogy comes to mind is I look at Philippians chapter three and I think of this great challenge that we have in the culture in the West and that Christianity, our culture, it doesn't permeate. It's not diffusive, right? We're, we're happy to give Jesus our sin and shame but not as happy and a lot more reluctant to give him my success. You can take all the bad stuff, you can take the misery, right? And you can get this compartment in my life, but you're not gonna be my life. You get a room in my life, you don't get my life as a whole. I mean, seek first the kingdom. Yeah, I'm all about that. In the kingdom room, I seek first the kingdom. In the office room, I seek first the promotion. So these, those are two different spaces. I definitely seek first the kingdom. Every time I'm in the kingdom room, I'm seeking first the kingdom. You see what I mean? It doesn't permeate. And this passage is intensely, even awkwardly, clarifying. Because this passage is God leaning over into the face of the believer and saying, if you will, this is what you get to live for. This is your new favorite thing. Knowing Christ. Whatever defined you the day before you met me is different. This is you now. This is your main thing now. This gets you out of bed in the morning. This is what makes you tick. This gets the wallet. This gets the calendar. This gets the marriage. Everything is informed by and permeated by this reality. This passage is about ambition. This passage tells Christians what to go after with everything that we've got. You know what else this passage does, if I can borrow the motto from Austin, Texas, is it keeps Christianity weird. This passage keeps Christianity weird. You know, there are certain verses in the Bible that are loved by both Christians and non-Christians. And then there's this passage. This passage is different, right? The only people on the planet who say what Philippians 3 says that we just read are Christians. Nobody else is saying this. In other words, if you read this passage from outside the Christian faith, looking in from outside the Christian faith, these words aren't appealing, they're not especially attractive, they seem anticlimactic. What's the fuss about? Like, this is really your main thing, your highest ambition? But there's a reason that our culture knows I can do all things through Christ better than because of him I had suffered the loss of all things and count it as gain. There's a reason our culture doesn't say the latter, but it readily says the former. Take this first point, for example, the emptiness of possessing everything. The emptiness of possessing everything. Who talks like that? Look at verse four. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews regarding the law, a Pharisee regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. That's Paul's resume right there. And then look what he says in verse seven. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be loss because of Christ. What, what are we hearing there in those words from the Apostle Paul? You're hearing Paul, what Paul boasted in the day before he met Jesus. All that stuff, that's what woke him up in the morning. That was his passion. All his energy went in that direction. All the things that gave Paul a sense of significance and meaning here, he says, I count as loss. 
The title of the sermon is Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but this passage actually starts with the, the reverse. This is in your notes. Everything without Jesus is nothing. That's where Paul begins. Everything without Jesus. If it doesn't have Jesus and we have everything else, it amounts to nothing. Again, this only makes sense from the inside of Christian faith. The gain is loss and loss is gain. That doesn't resonate with those outside of the Christian faith. You think about it this way. If you're a non-Christian and you're given the, the control of the PR of Christianity in the world, you're saying, Paul, don't lead with this. This isn't, this isn't your best look. Out here in the world, I'm just saying, this doesn't resonate. This isn't the sound people want to hear. Verse 8, Paul, it just sounds like a downer, right? You use the word loss and dung in the same sentence. That's just, that's not bringing people in. That's not going to fill the room with people who are interested in finding out more. And Paul says, I count all that stuff as loss. And you say, what stuff? And it's the things that got him out of bed in the morning the day before he met Jesus. Suddenly, all of that seemed hollow compared to something else. There was this new sight that relativized the value of everything else in his life. Paul, Paul sort of has a, a bonfire going in verse four through six, and he's throwing the strangest things into the fire in verse four through six. Uh, growing up as a Christian in the 1980s, any youth camp worth its salt had a bonfire so that the students could repent of being secular and throw in all their cassettes of secular music, right? And so in goes Guns N' Roses and R.E.M. and Def Leppard and Bon Jovi and Midnight Star and no parking on the dance floor, just melting there, right? And I threw in, I threw my own personal tape of Michael Jackson Thriller into the fire. I, and I'm not sure it counted because I regretted it the moment it left my hand. <laughs> it's like, can I go back and snatch that out and still save face? Like, I so wanted it back. You know, his face is just melting. He's like leaning up, looking all great, and then just shriveling. But Paul, Paul is building this really odd bonfire, and he's throwing the good stuff in it. Not the leftovers, the good stuff. His Benjamite birth certificate, that'll get you places. What are you doing? You're from the tribe of Benjamin that gave Israel its first king. The tribe of Benjamin was the only one, besides Judah itself, that was still faithful 900 years ago when everything went sideways and everybody left except Benjamin and Judah still believed in the dynasty of David. And you're from that tribe, man. That's worth something. Paul, Paul throws it in his seminary degree, his, his graduation picture, if you will, with Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of, of the law in the first century. That was the guy who was his supervisor for his doctoral dissertation, Gamaliel, goes into the fire. Church attendance record, almsgiving record, it's all going into the flames. And if you're from Paul's culture, you're saying, dude, what are you thinking? Everything that you are, you just threw in the fire. Oh, that's all the stuff that tells the world you're worth listening to. What are you doing? This makes absolutely no sense. That tells you, that tells people you're a person of substance, that you're not one of the invisibles, that you raise the intellectual average of the part of the empire that we live in. You raise the moral averages of the part of the world that we live in. What are you doing throwing in your moral report card? 
You can almost imagine Paul's teacher saying, have you lost your marbles, son? What are you thinking? You're promising young scholars coming up behind Paul and just shaking their heads in absolute dismay, just looking at him and saying, dude, you used to be a poster on my wall. Like our parents used to tell us, aim high, maybe one of these days you'll write like, the, like Saul of Tarsus. Maybe one of these days you'll do work with him on something really important. And now, now what do you have? You have nothing. You threw it all away. What's happened to you? And for what? What'd you get out of this? No self-respecting synagogue in the empire will invite you to come speak anymore. And if they did, it doesn't matter because, oh yeah, you're in jail. You are wasted potential with a face. What does Paul say? Verse eight. I also consider everything to be loss in view of the surpassing value This is what he gets out of it. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Does that sound like the Christianity you embraced the day you believed? The all-clarifying moment of life occurs when we meet the real Jesus. Say that again. The all clarifying moment of life occurs when we meet the real Jesus. You can hear me. You can have all the success and the wealth and the reputation and the beauty and the health that this world dreams about, and you can lack the one thing you need the most. You weren't made for that stuff. You weren't made to be satisfied by that stuff. You're made for him. To enjoy him, to know him, to be joined and united to Christ. He's he's telling us this text is clarifying something for us. You can make it to the top, but if you're all the way at the top and you're not living to know Jesus Christ, it's all worthless in the end. Trinkets. Useless things. There's clarity here about the emptiness of possessing everything and there's clarity here, second, about the wonder of possessing Christ. The wonder of possessing Christ. Look at verse seven. But everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be lost because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We understand intuitively, don't we, that bad things keep people from God. We get that. What we don't realize is how often it's the good things that keep us from God. That's what Paul is highlighting here. Often, it's the good things that keep us from God. You can have religion and not have God. There was a time in the life of Saul of Tarsus where that didn't compute. Those words made no sense. He had no category for being religious but without God. You think about that in our own time, in our own day and age, in our own culture. There are probably thousands of of people within a 20 mile radius of where you're sitting right now who have no category for this. 
that you can be Baptist and not have Jesus. That doesn't compute for probably thousands of people just miles from here. Doesn't compute at all. You can be religious while you're stiff-arming Jesus. You can pull both of those off at the same time. Simultaneously, that's possible. Author Michael Horton dropped a bombshell on American Christianity back in 2012 when he wrote a book entitled Christless Christianity. And he said this. What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Now, there's some shock value here. If Satan really took control of a city, over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, the city where Barnhouse pastored, all of the bars would be closed pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. It's almost like we, we think that Satan has only one play in his playbook. Hey, let's run, get everybody to do bad things. Let's run that again. We ran it last down. Let's run that one again. It's the only thing that he knows how to do. Hey, let's do drugs and alcohol and sex. Let's run that. We just did it. Let's do it again. Keeps working. It's it's his only play. That's, That's not true. He has known great success through this other initiative called the Be a Good Person initiative. Some wild successes that he's seen through that particular play. Take the Pharisees, for example. They weren't selling drugs out of the back of the synagogue. You catch those guys, and if they're wearing a trench coat and they open it up, they don't have drugs on them. What do they have? Evangelism tracks. Jesus said you cross all the way to the other side of the world to make them proselytes, to make converts, and you make them twice the son of hell that you are. They got evangelism tracks in there. You reach in there, they got Bible reading plans in there. That's that's what they've got. And yet, at the same time, they're stiff-arming Jesus. Passing out Bible reading plans, passing out evangelism tracks, stiff-arming Jesus. Proximity to the things of Jesus can be deeply, deeply deceptive. Read this statement from Joe Coffey in his book, Red Like Blood. He said, when your dad is the pastor, you grow up in church. In my case, this was no figure of speech. When I was six, we actually lived in the church building for over a year. A Sunday school class met in our living room. The best thing I remember about that year was finding the refrigerator down in the basement with bottles and bottles of Welch's grape juice. For a year, I unknowingly drank communion straight from the bottle. Jesus and I wouldn't be that close again for decades. We can be around religion and miss a transforming experience of Jesus. That is deeply possible. There are versions of Christianity available that have all the Christian stuff, all the trimmings, without a biblical Jesus. He's not There, look, nobody becomes a Christian without being convinced of three things. This always happens, invariably. No one becomes a Christian without being convinced Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is treasure. Not one of them, not two of them. All three of them go active the day that you believe or else you would have kept going on with your life as it was before. If you, so put it this way, if you genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ 10 years ago today, 
then 10 years ago today, the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see Jesus, the Savior, paid for your sin. Jesus, the Lord, will be king over your life. Jesus, the treasure, is more satisfying than anything. Those three things clicked. The Holy Spirit made them click. Again, otherwise, you would keep marching on your merry way toward hell. He opened your eyes to see this. Here's the reality. Jesus didn't come to leave us the way we were before. He takes us the way that we are, to be sure, but he doesn't leave us the way that we were. The man who sold us a car a few, a few months ago and we were waiting for the finance office to do their, their thing and we're having some small talk and I brought up church and, um, and he said he, he believes in Jesus and I said, tell me more, that's, that's cool, let's talk a little bit more about that and he said true things about Jesus, about his life and whereabouts in the world he generally walked and did his things and worked miracles and healed people and then he died on the cross and then he rose again from the dead. It was all, all true, every word of it was true. You ever catch yourself talking about Jesus in a way that Jesus sounds like the tooth fairy that adults are allowed to believe in? Right, there's no real connection to our hearts, it's just like we know tooth fairy facts. Everybody knows what tooth fairy does. Adults can tell you what the tooth fairy does, but it doesn't change your Monday. It, it doesn't change your week, right? You see the analogy, fact number one, the tooth fairy gives money in exchange for teeth. Fact number two, Jesus died and rose again. In both cases, the result is the same. It makes no difference in real life. That's tooth fairy Christianity. It doesn't really connect with any deep places in our lives. We have a tooth fairy Jesus. Friend, that Jesus doesn't save. The, the airbrushed, decaffeinated, pansy, unmajestic Jesus who floats high over the Bible belt doesn't save because he doesn't exist. It's not the real Jesus. It's not the one standing up in the pages of Scripture. When Paul talks about Jesus, by way of contrast, doesn't sound like the tooth fairy we're all allowed to believe in. Sounds like he's in the room. And he's my righteousness. All of my righteousness is bound up with my union with this living Savior. He's the answer to my life. He's my highest hopes. He's my Lord. He uses that language. I'm in prison. Yeah, I'm rotting here in jail for his sake, but it's worth it. It'll be worth it when I wake up tomorrow rotting here in jail. Jesus sounds like he's actually alive somewhere. He's present. He's real. A real encounter with Jesus, oh, hear this, a real encounter with Jesus will leave a mark. Check Paul out on the road to Damascus. After he's knocked on, flat on his back, he needs Advil and he needs a seeing eye dog after he meets Jesus. He needs a chiropractor after he meets Jesus. It left a mark. It changed the man fundamentally. There's a difference between Jesus is okay and Jesus is everything I need and want. The first is so much of what passes for Christianity. The second is the real thing. Jesus is everything I need. Everything I want.
I read this life-changing verse, again, almost exactly 25 years ago. You rewind from freshman year, a couple months in, rewind six years from that moment back to the story. Many of you know that I lost my dad. He was, he was preaching a sermon on Palm Sunday in 1988, and I was sitting right there on the second row, and he fell over in the middle of his sermon and had a heart attack. Um, and the, uh, my own life went into a tailspin for the next five plus years. And I was sad and I was so angry I could spit. And so I was trying to drown all of that in just me making noise. Me being crazy in front of my friends, me doing just the biggest dare and the craziest stuff, and that's, that's what my life became. I was just trying to drown all of this. I entered high school, and I was seriously overcompensating. And I, I always felt like I had to be on socially, but it was a work for me. I always felt like I had to be on, and I'll never forget a woman in our student ministry. She was a volunteer, and she knew me so well, and she had loved me in the aftermath, both before as well as in the aftermath of my dad's death for a few years, and had cared for me. And I remember one time, I remember where we were standing in the lobby of that church building when she, I was away from my friends and so she knew she wouldn't embarrass me. And she looked right through me. And she said, when do you let yourself just be? Where you're not trying to keep up appearances and trying to just constantly be a goofball. When do you just get to, to chill out? And I laughed it off and I made some passing dismissive joke and, and this is key, she let me do that. That was a gift, she let me do, I wasn't ready but she had punctured my armor. She had gotten through, she was looking straight through me at my angry, sad, grief-ridden, right, guilt, shame, lust. It, I, I was just a cocktail of misery and I was exhausted. And she knew it, she said, you're tired. And I barely graduated, I barely made it through 10th grade, my mom had to plead for mercy. Graduated from high school by the skin of my teeth and drove nine hours to college from New Orleans to Dallas in college and on my way there, it was pouring rain and it was almost a metaphor because inside, inside the car, I was weeping almost the whole way to Dallas. And I was saying out loud, sometimes screaming, this is it. It changes now. I'm living for you now. The world behind me, New Orleans behind me, everything changes. I get there, I'm going to start reading your word on day one. And I got there and I checked in and I got my bed made and I got my Bible out. And for the first time, I just started reading. I said, I'm going to read through the New Testament. Had never read through the New Testament. So much of it was completely unfamiliar. Grew up in a pastor's home, but a lot of it was still unfamiliar because I hadn't read it for myself. And I read Matthew's gospel that week. And then I went to Mark and Luke and John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. And then about this month, I came to Philippians for the first time in my life. And I read this chapter. What things were gained to me? These I've counted loss 
for the sake of Christ. And then those words in verse 10 in the New King James, that I may know him. And those words just sang in room 402 of the GLT building 25 years ago. And I walked over, my friend Ed had a keyboard he had set up, he was my roommate. And I went over to the keyboard and turned it on and just began to play and I made a melody and set this verse to a melody and I just wept for joy. In the discovery of the purpose of my life. I was made for this and it clicked. This is why I'm here. This is where the joy is at. This is why I exist, to know him. Friends, please hear me. If we live for the applause of this world, if we live to accumulate resources and bank and influence and honor and wealth and power, we will waste our lives. There's only one ultimate aim that is ultimately satisfying, making much of Jesus, knowing Jesus. And, and I loved, I love these words, that it's gain. Paul will not have it if you try to define the Christian life primarily in terms of loss. He says, baloney, everything I lost was dung in the first place. Means nothing by comparison to what I'm gaining. I am winning in this. I am gaining in this. Let there be no mistake, nothing's being lost. He calls it dung, Jesus' gain. We, we Christians, we can give the world a terrible impression of Jesus. Hey, come follow Jesus. Say goodbye to everything you've ever enjoyed. That's the impression we sometimes give to the world. The Christians talk about Jesus like he's a flu shot. It's like, wait, sorry, I lost track. I wasn't listening for a second. Are you talking about a person or a seatbelt? Right? The, the tone and the language and the, the phraseology you're using just lost track, right? For Paul, knowing Jesus is everything, everything. Several years ago, John Piper and some other leaders went to go meet with a group of younger scholars who were spearheading a movement called the Emergent Conversation. And they sat down together to try to, to, try to reconcile, to try to make sure we're hearing each other and not talking past each other. And they sat down and once they got into it, Piper leaned forward and he said, I want to ask you a question about this text in scripture. And he asked the question and, and they said from the other side of the table, that's not a question that interests us. And Piper went on later to recount what was so frustrating about the meeting is that both sides of the table thought that the questions the other one was asking didn't matter. We were completely talking past each other because we didn't share the same ultimate values and ultimate priorities, so we couldn't get anywhere. Look, this passage is our highest ambition. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you live for. There's no negotiation. This is what you get to live for. I want to know him. It's not Tooth Fairy Jesus. It's the living, risen Lord of glory. We get to know him, the one who, who existed in eternity past and then humbled himself to become a man and take on human flesh. The one who walks through the pages of the gospels and he's healing people and he's raising the dead. The one who wants supper with the worst sinner in town. That Jesus, the real Jesus. 
the one who hangs on a cross to pay for the sins of the people who put them there. That Jesus. Christian friend, if you're a believer, the one who saved you personally, paid for you personally, the one who stands with you when all hell breaks loose, that real Jesus, the one who likes being around you even when you give him no reasons to like being around you, that real Jesus. Philippians 3 is the total Jesus. The Jesus who is so compelling that to know him is to require nothing beside him. Paul says, I consider everything to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If, if your Christianity stopped the moment you walked the aisle and said the prayer, you missed the best part. It's, it's the all-in part that makes all the difference. It's the genuine being joined and united to Jesus. You stopped just before things get awesome. Halfway Jesus doesn't satisfy anybody. If life is still about you, if the best things in life are the passing pleasures of this world, friend, I say this with great soberness, you might not be awake to Jesus Christ. You might be dreaming you're awake. You ever had that experience before where you're dreaming that you're awake and you're so convinced you're awake until you wake up? And that's what I've been praying happens even today when we look at this text that people maybe around the room who are dreaming that they're awake to Jesus, but it's not firing in the heart and in the life and in the ambition center that he would wake you up. You wouldn't be dreaming you're awake anymore. You'd actually be awake to the glory of Jesus and you'd stop withholding. We suffer when we withhold from Jesus. And we wouldn't be content to have as little of Jesus as we need in order to get to heaven. Look, this is the peril and the danger of cultural Christianity. We fail to realize this truth, that the more we know Jesus, the deeper our joy. And the more we give to Jesus, the better he gets. He gets. 